This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome 5pm in the City of London. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. Uh, it's Tuesday, only Tuesday. It's been a long week already, but we are starting to see some signs maybe of stabilisation uh, in the UK bond market, which is very good news. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about. Uh, I'm Guy Johnson in London. Alex Steele's over in New York. We've got the whole banking season to talk about stateside. We'll do that a little bit later on. Alex, equity markets finishing in positive territory over here with the FTSE 100 uh, finishing at 69.36, up by around two-tenths of 1%. Saw a little bit of a fade on your side of the pond, but it does seem to be coming back up again. I see a NASDAQ that is now up by six tenths of 1%. Yeah, you got, I got to be honest, after the last couple of weeks we've had, this feels like a very normal calm day. It feels no, it a bit it? boring. Yeah. Now we're back to earnings. We got the VIX around 30. We got a little rally. We faded a little bit. But like, there's nothing, there's no drama. So, and after the last couple of weeks, I can't tell if I like it or if I don't. No, I, I definitely like it. Okay? I'm <laughs> well, you for sure. I am, I am firmly in favor of a few quiet days. I think th that sounds like an excellent, excellent idea. I suspect the Bank of England and probably most of the government probably thinks about that uh, <laughs> being a good idea as well. Um, we'll talk more about British politics in just a moment. Uh, some fascinating polls coming out today uh, from the UK in terms of where the Conservative Party would like to see its next leader coming from. Uh, we've also had some um, some volatility around whether or not the Bank of England is going to be uh, continuing with its uh, QT programme or starting its QT programme, its quantitative tightening programme, uh, in a few days' time. We'll deal with all of this in just a moment. First, though, some headlines. Here's Charlie Pellet. Hi, thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. Some of the world's biggest financial firms, including BlackRock and Vanguard, have told the UK they have no plans to halt the financing of new fossil fuel supplies in response to a list of questions sent by British lawmakers tasked with figuring out how the country can meet its own net zero obligations. The inquiries being held by the Environmental Audit Committee of the House of Commons, Britain, which has successfully been sued by a group of climate activists early this year for putting forward an unclear net zero plan, has asked firms to explain how they are incorporating science-based requirements to phase out and ultimately halt the financing of new fossil fuel supply. Germany's Interior Ministry has suspended the head of the country's cybersecurity agency after a television report uncovered an alleged link with Russian intelligence. A ministry spokeswoman said the decision to strip Arne Schonbaum of his powers as president of the Federal Cybersecurity Authority was taken because the allegations in the report, quote, have permanently damaged the public's necessary trust in the neutrality and impartiality of the conduct of his duties. Beer delivery workers in the UK say they will strike at the end of this month, raising the threat of shortages at pubs and other public venues across the country. Unite Union says around 1,000 employees at GXO Logistics, which accounts for around 40% of beer deliveries in Britain, plan to walk out in a pay dispute between October 31st and November 4th. The union says GXO sites across the country include those at Southampton, Aberdeen, Manchester, and Inverness. That is the latest from the news desk. Uh, back to you now, Guy Johnson in London. Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed. That GXO story, mm. I think the timing's interesting here. Let's just say that comes just as I suspect many pubs 
will be stocking up for the FIFA World Cup. I suspect the timing uh, is not an accident. Charlie, thank you very much indeed. This is serious stuff, Alex. In fact, this is probably the most serious That's when you have the leverage, man. When everyone needs the things, you got the leverage to do the stuff. Talking of a lack of leverage, let's talk a little bit about the British Prime Minister, who probably does need a drink. Um, Today, something of a mere culpa from Liz Truss. Now, I recognise we have made mistakes. I'm sorry uh, for those mistakes, but I've fixed the mistakes. I've appointed a new Chancellor. Uh, We have restored economic stability and fiscal discipline. And what I now want to do is go on and deliver for the public. We were elected on the 2019 manifesto. I'm determined to deliver on that. Now, I recognise we have made mistakes. I'm sorry uh, for those mistakes. Sorry for those mistakes. Um, She didn't sound very sorry. No, and I I think it's interesting that she continues to lean on this idea that a lot of this is down to global forces. Um, It was interesting to see the Bank of England publishing the the volatility story around the 30-year today, saying uh, that I think it was the five most volatile days we've seen in in the trading of the 30-year gilt have come come after uh, that mini-budget that was announced by the then-Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng. Therese Raphael from Bloomberg Opinion joins us now to give us her take on all of this. What do you make of the mea culpa? Well, look, I'm with Alex. I think that didn't sound like uh, a very heartfelt sorry. And even if it was, it you know, she gave no indication that she really understands what happened. And, hmm. you know, she hasn't explained to people what she's sorry for. What aspect of, you know, the 10 things that went wrong uh, <laughs> from, from, or more, um, you know, d- does she regret most? And, and I think that has to be part of any attempt to sort of continue on. And, you know, maybe the fact that it was just sort of a a kind of muttered apology and once again, um, you know, bringing up the global circumstances. I mean, everyone knows there are these global conditions, but there's no denying, as you just said, that there is a now a serious premium on, you know, UK borrowing costs. It's filtered through to mortgages, which are now at, you know, 6.53%, I think we we saw today. So um, these have implications. As she said, she fixed the mistakes. Mm. And I think that's also quite questionable because, well, you know, how can you, you know, you can, you can sort of completely eviscerate the policy, but the impact remains. So when you say, when we both said she doesn't sound very sorry, I, I was trying to think about what would it be like for her to truly apologize? Like, would she have to come out in like a press conference and actually answer all the questions in like some meaningful way that wasn't yeah. just, you know, rhetoric like she did on yeah. Friday? Is it saying this is what happened? This is what went wrong? Yeah. Like, how can she actually fix it at this point? Yeah, Alex, I think that I think that that gets a lot closer to it. I think she needed to come. First of all, she needed to she needed to acknowledge the mistakes much sooner. So she was really forced into, um, a, a, you know, a, a sort of 11th hour kind of acknowledgement that things had gone bad. She got rid of Quasi on, on Friday. Even when Hunt was appointed, it wasn't clear that he, he you know, he was, uh, that, that Truss understood that he was going to reverse absolutely everything. It was sort of, well, we'll, we'll back down on the corporate tax, um, the decision to keep the corporate tax at 19%, but sort of the idea was that the rest of her, her tax cuts and her policy would stand. And then when he got up uh, in front of the House of Commons and, and in his earlier statement, he literally just slashed everything that wasn't already in legislation. So yes, I think she needed to 
Uh, she needed to take more questions. She needed to show a fuller understanding yep. of the uh, of of the impact of events. She needed to also not simply fall back on my vision is the same. I want to grow the economy. Everyone would like to see economic growth. She needed to kind of explain how you now get from here to there. And I think that's still missing from this government. We're now looking at, you know, a recipe for uh, yes. Markets are calm, but we're also heading into um, a much deeper recession. Mortgage, you know, are going up. Energy prices uh, are going to hit the middle classes. So, you know, things could get worse before they get better. Who is running the government? Well, I think it's quite clearly Jeremy Hunt right now. I mean, so, he, so who made the decision to 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 put Jeremy Hunt in place? Well, that's a good question. Yeah, I mean. You know, ultimately, that decision couldn't happen without trust agreeing to it. And I think we have to assume, and I, you know, I wasn't in that room, um, so just, these, just, yeah. these are just guesses. But I think we have to assume that at that point, she is looking at whatever she can do to save her premiership. And, you know, that included sacrificing her closest ideological but ally and a close personal friend. But, you know, this is a, a cabinet government and had other members of the cabinet resigned, uh, there would have been an immediate uh, leadership challenge or, um, you know, potentially, you know, if, if the Tories couldn't find a new leader, then, you know, what happens? You have to eventually, um, <laughs> you have to go to a new yep. election at some point. But then she so, does a really weird yeah. thing yesterday of not showing up to the House of Commons to, to, to take questions and put Penny Porton. Penny Morton in, instead. And then she comes like half hour later, sits there for half an hour while Jeremy Hunt speaks and then leaves. I don't understand that communication strategy. Yeah, I think it was awkward all the way through. And, uh, you know, apparently she was meeting with Graham Brady, the chairman of the 1922 committee. Um, yep, that was a sort of odd bit of timing there. Um, I mean, surely this has been, this has just hit her very hard. It's been a an unbelievably fraught um, few days, and so who knows really what what's going on behind those scenes? I mean, she everything we know about her is that she is a survivor who will, you know, do whatever it takes to try to battle through, and she doesn't have many options left to her. You know, probably her, the saving grace for now, maybe for this week um, at most, is that the Tories appear very divided on. What, who they would replace her with yeah. and, and what they stand for, if not, you know, trussonomics um, and, you know, if, if, if they want to avoid a return to austerity. So those questions are unanswered. There are different factions within the party. And so far she is, you know, she's she's holding that seat um, until the point that there's some kind of agreement on that. It's possession nine tenths of the law. Is Jeremy Hunt the most likely candidate to become the next prime minister? Some people are talking about it. There was polling today to suggest that the Conservative Party would like to see this happen. Then they probably always wanted to see this happen. That Boris Johnson could make a return. How likely is that? Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you said you didn't want boring, Alex. It's so true, here we go. <laughs> you know, I think. I think in the very near term, it's really hard for me to see that. Not because there aren't, you know, diehard Johnson supporters in the Tory party that say, you know, we've gone out of the frying pan into the fire, but just, you know, it's still pretty raw, um, the period that, you know, that, that we've just finished yep. with the, the period you know, from party like six gate weeks and ago. everything. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and I think, it, it, you know, it will look it will look incredibly desperate for the Tories now to go back to Johnson, who, by the way, is traveling around making, you know, 
a lot of money on, on the speaking tour and probably would like to continue to do that for a little while. However, I would say the closer we get to a, an election, the harder things get, the, you know, the more distant the memories of the chaos of the Johnson administration, mm. the more, you know, I'd say those chances begin to improve. And, you know, he he would probably be the last person to rule it out. So when we look at the next, say, two years, let's just say or next year, just to say that she's in there for a year, can't do anything about it, can't change the rules, whatever. What, are we going to see anything that resembles a credible growth plan? Like, what can she deliver that would say, okay, that signals to me that we could get growth versus, like, when I read everything, I, I can't believe we're not looking at austerity at this point. Right. So I think there are things that conservatives can do. And, you know, I'd say that there was a world in which trussonomics was rolled out in a way that was credible. So the markets had priced in that they were going to you know, not do the corporate tax increase. They priced in that they were going to get rid of this increase to the national insurance contribution. They would have gotten away with that, I think. But because Quasi Quartang surprised the markets with this additional tax and doubled down and fired, you know, the the, the chief uh, civil servant at the Treasury and so on and so on, credibility just drained away. So is there an element of so the, the, the tax cutting agenda that's gone for now, as you say, we're, we're going to have restraint on the spending side. What could they do? I mean, I think they still have to try to um, create a, an environment where businesses want to invest. And obviously, yeah. the very first step there is is stability, which is what we're hearing from the government all and on. They can devolve more powers to local authorities for decision making. They can try to continue with infrastructure investments. But all of these things are going to pay dividends in the longer term. I think the, the quickest thing they could do is um, improve the uh, the flow of immigrant labor, because we have an extremely tight labor market. Businesses cannot find workers. Um, and yet that's that, you know, that's something the Tories aren't even talking about, because they spent so much time, uh, you know, talking about taking back control of the borders yeah. and, and stopping votes. But that is one thing they could do. It would, you know, it's a marginal improvement. Uh, but, I'm not sure it would be marginal. I think it could have quite a big impact. Oh, yeah. So over and, time, I think it yeah. could. Are they going to be brave enough to tackle the NHS? Are they going to be brave enough to get rid of the triple lock on pensions? So the triple lock, I think, has to go uh, because, you, you know, the, the idea that pensions um, you know, for listeners who don't know what that is, that pensions, you know, could rise with the higher of inflation um, or two and a half percent or what's the third thing in the triple lock? I can't remember. Blakey on that right now. But, yep. you know, something if, if pensions increasing at the rate of inflation is 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 nuts right now, isn't it? So uh, given the given what this government is is dealing with. So I think they'll probably have to find a way out of that, um, you know, and yep. and I think they'll have to probably set out a longer term plan that does roll back some of the taxation. Um, but, you know, this is this is a hard slog yeah. after what we've had in the last few weeks. Therese, we could, we could talk for hours. I, th this subject is. I'm good. I'm good. I think we can go. <laughs> OK. 15 minutes. To be honest, I, I'm pretty good to go as well. It's been a bumpy <laughs> few days. Therese, thank you very much indeed. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. Let's move to energy in Europe for a moment. So the European Union announced a new emergency package to help tackle this energy crunch. And there's a couple things uh, that went into it. So on the first hand, they're looking at price limits on transactions on the Dutch title transfer facility. 
The main index is the benchmark for all gas traded uh, in the continent. They're looking for some wide price gaps for that to make it a little bit easier. They're also looking at potentially joint purchases of LNG. The idea is if you all work together, you can negotiate a lower price. I have questions on that one. Uh, they're still thinking about whether or not they're going to cap gas prices used for electricity production. Um, we have Spain and Portugal has are, have already done that, but the problem with that is that potentially you won't be able to cap demand because everyone will just keep using electricity because now it's capped. Um, so there's still a lot of things to be decided and things to figure out. So let's get some details here with Rachel Morrison, uh, Bloomberg team leader for European Gas and Power. Rachel, what stood out to you in the plan that slowly is rolling out for the EU? I think it's interesting because it, it keep the tone keeps changing. You know, we have the overall message the EU knows it needs to do something to limit prices. However, what they include and don't include sort of depends on what the Commission is hearing from member states, what's likely to be difficult. So we know that joint purchasing seems to be one of the sort of key things that they're doing, but that, you know, doesn't necessarily have a huge impact. And I think it's interesting that the change this time um, or, you know, in this version of what they're putting forward is that any price cap would be, um, you know, further down the line and not immediate because they're kind of running up against this problem that whatever they do needs to happen quickly and they don't want to do something that they haven't thought through properly um, at a very fast pace because that could cause problems. So we're sort of seeing a mixture of what they think will have an impact and what they'll be able to get agreement on and what they can do quickly. Rachel, is the pressure beginning to fade a little bit, though? I look at what is happening, and Alex, Alex mentioned the, the Dutch TTF contracts. I look at UK prices as well. They are down a long, long way. Yeah, it's interesting. I said the same thing earlier, too, that it's a strange time for this sort of meeting, um, these emergency measures, because anyone opposed to anything can sort of say, well, look at the market. You know, we don't have that same pressure that we had a few months ago. However, we kind of think that this is a short-term blip in that it's strangely warm at the moment for October. The heating nice. season hasn't really kicked off. We have yeah, we have LNG, um, you know, heading to Europe more than we really need at the moment, particularly in mm -hmm. Spain. So once it starts to get cold, we will need that gas. Yes. And, you know, we do expect prices to go back up. But it is a very strange moment in the market where it's almost like gas prices are headed back below 100 um, euros, yeah. which would be the lowest since June. And, you know, that's not, that doesn't scream emergency mm -hmm. in the same way as no. it did a few months ago. I should point out, and I flagged this a couple of days ago, that China's restricting its LNG exports because they want to keep it. I'm just saying, like, if it all of a sudden gets really cold and storage draws, it's going to be hard to find gas. Um, so, so to that point, when the idea that they're all going to negotiate together to secure longer-term contracts, I am extraordinarily skeptical of this. You unite together so you can kind of bargain the price down. In this particular market, what seller is going to be like, cool, all right, I'm going to take less money instead of going to like China, for example? Yes, I think that that will be the problem. I share some of your skepticism that Europe is really big enough to sort of go to the US and say, you know, we're only paying this, take it or leave it, because then clearly like, they can uh, just say, okay. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll leave it. Um, so I think that that might be a little bit of wishful thinking on Europe's part. I mean, maybe with Norway and some other pipeline gas, it might have more impact 
um, than with for, for LNG supplies. But the idea is also to kind of link prices to Asian LNG prices so that Europe is always that price plus a couple of dollars to make it more attractive. So it could be that the U.S. pays less, but it's still you know higher than the Asian price, which just kind of removes that premium, which I think is the aim rather than getting you know cheaper than Asian gas. The logical thing in this situation would be to go, we are prepared to sign long-term contracts, 10 years plus. How far away are we from doing that in Europe, do you think? There's been a lot of reluctance in Europe to sign long-term contracts because of the energy transition and not wanting to lock into fossil fuels for 20 years. Um, and and that's not really easy to square off um, unless you believe that CCS is going to become... Um, carbon capture and storage is going to become very successful and you'll be able to use gas and use CCS and it will, you know, be clean um, in 20 years' time. So Europe wants shorter-term contracts than that, um, but they're finding it difficult to find those, particularly with places like Qatar that, you know, want longer-term contracts. And also, really, Europe had pushed for longer-term contracts with Russia and that hasn't really paid off. Well, also, I mean... Qatar is under a multi-bazillion dollar expansion uh, here in the U.S., billions of dollars also flowing into uh, export facilities. You're not going to put that kind of capital down to secure a five-year contract. That is completely not realistic. Yes, unless you think that maybe prices will be higher in five years' time and the spot market will be booming. But yeah, you're right. It does um, it's sort of the same as the PPA market for renewables. You know, developers want that long-term certainty about where their gas is going to go and how much they're going to get for it in order to invest. Um, what does this all mean for the UK? If it, it, Is this positive for the UK as it looks to what is happening on the continent or negative? I'm assuming as we rely so much on the continent for electricity that, that we are very much in need for them to stabilise the situation as well. Yes. So during the winter, we rely on exports from Europe. So that situation in the summer where we had lots of LNG coming to the UK and we were sending gas to Europe is reversed. We need Europe to send gas to us. So we are very much reliant on, you know, prices in Europe falling, but also, you know, Europe being able to supply gas. And we've talked a lot about gas storage. um, And, you know, the UK will be hoping to secure some of the gas from storage that prices yep. will, you know, send it our way. But it, whatever happens in Europe is going to be a yep. problem for the UK too. Rachel, great stuff as ever. Thank you very much indeed. Bloomberg's Rachel Morrison. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. So let's go to the U.S. equity market for a moment. I mean, what? S&P is now up by nine-tenths of one percent. So we are up by like two percent. Then all of a sudden the Nasdaq 100, for example, went negative and now we're rallying again. So kind of some whippy action. Uh, pretty choppy session. You have financials and materials kind of vying for the top spot within the S&P. Um, the best performing stock in the S&P though is Carnival because they're issuing debt at 11 percent plus yields. Hello. That is a pretty darn good yield there, but it's dragging up all of its uh, other um, competitors like Norwegian Cruise, etc. Uh, they're all rallying within the S&P. Um, dollar mixed, 
yields a little bit lower, but nothing really to write home about. Bank earnings, we'll get to that, though, in just a moment. Let's get some other headlines here with Charlie Pellet. Hi, thank you very much, Alex Steele. Just getting word the British Airways Pilots Union has reached a deal on pay, again, according to the union, but it averts the threat of a strike. The BA deal with the Pilots Union will now be put to members. The British government has summoned China's charged affair over allegations a Chinese diplomat oversaw the attack of a Hong Kong man in Manchester who was staging a peaceful protest against President Xi Jinping. Foreign officer, uh, Office Minister Jesse Norman told the House of Commons the UK is extremely concerned about the incident. He said Foreign Secretary James Cleverly issued the summons to the Chinese envoy to express, quote, his deep concern and demand an explanation for the actions of the staff at the Chinese consulate. Britain's first ever space launch is on track to take place before the end of November. According to billionaire Richard Branson, whose Virgin Orbit Holdings will undertake the mission, Spaceport Cornwall says it is waiting on licenses from the UK Civil Aviation Authority for the launch site for Virgin Orbit as the designated operator and for the payload itself. And Ryanair Holdings CEO Michael O'Leary says the discount carrier's ability to gain market share from rivals in a looming economic slowdown is at risk from delays to Boeing jetliner deliveries. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. All right, Charlie, thank you so much. Appreciate it. So let's get to the end of the bank earning world. So Goldman Sachs uh, reporting today trading revenue up a whopping 11%, all the way to $6.2 billion. Yes, there was a collapse in equity and debt underwriting, but we kind of knew uh, that was going to happen anyway. And their equities trading did really well, the best quarter on all of Wall Street, beating Morgan Stanley as well as J.P. Morgan. Uh, here is uh, Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon on the call today. The global economy continues to face significant headwinds. Inflation remains high. Central banks are raising interest rates at a pace not seen in decades. Meanwhile, equity markets are well off the recent highs. Geopolitical instability and energy shocks are an ongoing concern, and GDP growth expectations are declining. David Solomon, CEO of Goldman Sachs. Joining me in the studio, uh, Shanali Basak. She just got off the phone with David Solomon and team just about uh, two hours ago. Um, what were some of your takeaways from this conversation you had with them? I think the number one thing he said that I think is very important is that they are running more cautiously. They are running a tighter risk lens. This comes so interestingly at a time when they did beat on fixed income trading. They did win on equities trading because obviously they're taking on some risk. I get to do the nerdy things with you on radio, guys, and I pulled up their value at risk. Yes, you did. And so if you look at it, I'm so excited to talk about it because if you look at it, interest rates, currencies is where the bulk of that risk is being taken on. And and, and interest rates by a landslide, that's $102 million in average daily value at risk. Uh, $112, that compares to $36 for currencies, for example. So, you know, you have Goldman Sachs really punching high here. I contrast it with what uh, Brian Moynihan, the CEO of Bank of America, told David Weston yesterday. And what he was saying is, it's our job not to hold on to things. It's our, our job to move risk as much as we can. They had zero losses in terms of trading days. Excited to look at the 10 Qs when the banks report them because are they taking losses on some days in order to help navigate these markets, mm-hmm. especially as they're hinting here that they are tightening their appetite here? If they're tightening their appetite for risk, can we continue to see this kind of outperformance in trading, do you think, Shanali? Well, One question I have is, you do see, and we did speak to David Solomon about this, they're gaining as certain players are 
stepping back. So he wouldn't mention Credit Suisse by name. We asked him about Credit Suisse, but he said that European competitors slipping in this market has allowed the U.S. banks to take much bigger share and that he thinks that they are really gaining uh, market share here. And you see it in the numbers. He wouldn't give me a firm answer on whether they will keep on coming in above their rivals quarter after quarter, but it's clear that they're investing. And from what I know from my other reporting, they're not just investing in talent here to make things work. They're investing in technology mm-hmm. in order to make these trading desks super competitive. What um, what are some of your other big takeaways? Um, there's a lot to get through, like the reorg, the Marcus. What also stood out? You know, it's funny. I asked him point blank, does he think that this is a reversal by any means? And he very firmly, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And he said it's not a reversal. It's a pivot. It's a shift. He's like, that's what happens when you're building new businesses. That He said on the conference call with investors that it is a money-losing business, the consumer business, but he wouldn't say by how much. Now, in net revenue terms, it was a record, and it doubled from a year ago, blowing past Wall Street expectations by $100 million. The other thing, too, is think about what this has given Goldman. It's the only bank with a really close tie to Apple in its ambitions mm-hmm. for financial services. And the two have extended and amended, as they say, their partnership. That is, again, rare for you to see two big firms like that renegotiate terms of a partnership like that. And he said they both feel that they're getting something out of this relationship. And from Goldman's perspective, that $110 billion in deposits really helps with their funding base. So, you know, a realignment here, let's call it, of expectations. What's the big takeaway from the banking season thus far? Well, it's concluded. Um, We're going to get some of the smaller players. But the sense I have, and I'll be interested to get your take on kind of how how kind of far this extends is that all of these CEOs are talking a really positive picture when it comes to the about a positive picture when it comes to the US economy and particularly the US consumer. They've sold off a lot in the market already so I wouldn't get too excited about okay. a one day or even a one week move. Goldman is still down for example 17% on the year and I was looking Blackstone is reporting later in the week they're down 30% on the year. Mm. And so you do really? see the fear still. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting cuz they've been dueling market values for the last 12 months and what it's telling you you have both now Jamie Dimon and David Solomon telling you that there are cracks in the consumer that can be seen pretty soon here. And he does think that there is a recession risk. He thinks there's also a possibility of a soft landing. But uh, you do have two of the major bank CEOs telling you that next year can get tougher for the consumer. That doesn't make me feel very good. He also says M&A will slow down. Right. So, you know, they're, they're telling that. you. Already My bank account is an M&A, so it's fine. Um, but, all, but also, I guess the idea, too, is that they're already retrenching for that. So even if it doesn't necessarily happen, there's already the retrenchment starting. Listen, nobody wants a 2008 story in 2023. It does feel like we are far from that, though, on, on a banking level, no? Yeah, and you definitely see all the bankers really coming up and showing you that, both in terms of keeping their capital ratios not only strong, but trying to return as much as they can to shareholders. The question then becomes is how much does lending really pull back? Do they have to take more in charge-offs into next year? I think Bank of America will be one of the more extraordinary ones to watch, given they tone-wise they've been the most sanguine. Are we surprised that that there isn't more of a conversation about cutting staff? You know, yes. Yes, only because there were so many fears around it. But, you know, what what you can really see here happening is you can see these banks fighting to gain share in a down yep. market. 
And you see compensation costs are largely in line with expectations. Some are even down. So bankers are being paid less, yeah. but they're staying on payroll. Shanali, brilliant. She's brilliant. Great stuff. Super engaging. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Shanali Bassett joining us uh, from Bloomberg. All right, coming up, we'll talk with the CFO of J&J. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome. You're listening to The Cable live on DAB Digital Radio. Let me take you down to Chichester now, to Goodwood, near the racetrack. On the opposite side of the road, you find the Rolls-Royce factory. Huge changes are afoot. Rolls-Royce has just completed the first step towards fulfilling its promise to sell only electric vehicles by 2030. Today, the company unveiled its all-electric Spectre at the company's headquarters in Goodwood. Matt Miller and I spoke to the company's CEO, Torsten Muller-Ortfoss, about the EV. It's a prophecy fulfilled. Our founding father, Charles Rolls, said in 1900 that he foresees a great future for electric cars once charging is fixed and is available. And I think now we are here fulfilling his prophecy and uh, we are very excited. And our clients are, I mean, it's the very first time that you can acquire in the super luxury segment an electric car. So uh, it's the very first. And uh, for that reason, we are also immensely proud that we are the first. Obviously, it's a true Rolls-Royce and an electric Rolls-Royce second. And uh, that was very important for our clients. Are you going to put batteries in the Cullinan next? What's next for Rolls-Royce in terms of electrification? Yeah, I mean, I can't uh, talk uh, talk, uh, today about, let's say, obviously all the next steps. But one promise is clear. By end of 2030, Matt, we will be fully electrified. So every future Rolls-Royce we're going to bring into the market, every new one is a fully electrified Rolls-Royce. So we are seizing... Uh, building combustion engine cars end uh, or the beginning of 2030. Torsten, let's talk about the profitability that is going to be um, with you when, when you make this, this full move uh, to electrification. You make a lot of money off building traditional ICE engine cars. Your margins have been phenomenal. Are you going to be able to match those margins when you go all electric? Yes, Definitely, because that was always on my mind uh, when we had the plan to go electric. That is not a plan that was born uh, a year ago or whatever. We basically uh, came into it when we experimented for the very first time over 10 years ago with uh, a prototype of an electric Phantom. And the client feedback was always fabulous. It fits to the brand great. But obviously, we also knew that one day we go completely electric. And for that reason, contribution margins per car are untouched. They are as strong as they have used to be also in the past. For that reason, no worries. Rolls-Royce will stay a profitable, very profitable company. Torsten Odvost, the CEO of the Rolls-Royce car company, talking to Matt Miller and myself a little bit earlier on. Um, Alex, this is going to be a huge challenge. These companies are making a complete change in terms of the way they build cars. Torsten sounds very comp- sort of confident that he can continue basically to deliver on the margins that, that he has been thus far, and they have been extraordinary. But, but this, is a, this is a complete step change. Mm-hmm. Will customers want these kinds of cars? Um, 
will the complexity of bringing in a whole new drive chain sort of be more expensive? Ultimately, they're easier to build, but in the in the near term, it's going to be quite a complex process that the company has to go through. So my question is, and this is a nerdy car question, and I don't have an answer to it, um, Rolls-Royce isn't a car that depends on the sound of an engine going rev, 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 right? So it's more like the smoothest ride possible, yep. right? Am I, am I right in that? So in that case, just having an, uh, an an electric vehicle engine, an electric engine, is actually okay for them versus some other car companies that I think are dealing with more right. of the auditory part of a of, of a hot car. Yeah, you want if, if you're you driving a Ferrari, you want to feel the vibration and you want to hear the sound. Right. Rolls Royce, as Matt described, it was like a magic carpet. I was like, oh, when I was listening to the interview, I was like, oh, well, that's actually perfect for an electric engine. The magic carpet idea. It is. A Ferrari, a race car, that's a different kind of story. You have to like fake the noise or pretend you're hearing it in your head or something like that. No, you're absolutely right. They are going to be very heavy, though, and range is therefore going to be a factor. So they've got to resolve all of these issues. You, you want to be able to sit in the back of this car and, and waft your way along over long distances. Are you going to be doing that? But do you take a Rolls Royce long distance? I don't know. More discuss. J&J is, is up next, the CFO. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. Let's get back to earnings here. So uh, Johnson & Johnson reported earnings uh, out today. Their stock is now down by about six-tenths of 1%. Paired earlier gains and now have paired earlier losses. So the big highlight here was that it it lowered its full year earnings and sales outlook again because of the stronger dollar. They did it in April, they did it in July, and it was because of that stronger dollar. And you have to wonder, can we believe that this is the bottom? Sales were negatively impacted by about 6.2% in the third quarter uh, due to the dollar issue. So Guy and I sat down with J&J Executive VP and CFO Joseph Wolk, um, and I started with asking about the dollar impact and how sh- how confident he is that this can kind of be the bottom. Uh, you know, that's really hard to predict. Well, how we measure our, the performance of our management teams is really on operational uh, basis. And if you look at the third quarter, all three groups within our company actually accelerated growth over the second quarter. Uh, to put it in perspective, it's been worth about five points of growth to the total company on a year-to-date basis. Uh, that's our outlook for the year as well. And then about 68 cents per share on the bottom line, so not insignificant there, about $1.8 billion. Um, we do hope that uh, there'll be some leveling off. We've looked at charts over the last 35 years. When you see such a precipitous move, and it's only happened two or three times over that that time horizon, there usually is a leveling off. Obviously, the U.S. Treasury, uh, with its tightening of a fiscal policy, needs the rest of the world to kind of catch up, and hopefully that'll occur uh, in the coming quarters. One of the reasons why the dollar is doing as well as it is at the moment is because we've got a relatively relatively strong U.S. economy compared with the rest of the world. What are you seeing in that economy? What kind of headwinds do you think you're going to be facing? What's the position right now? Yeah, so Guy, you, you may have noticed in our print this morning, we've had about 170 basis points of gross margin erosion from the third quarter of last year. So we're dealing, just like every other industry, every other company, uh, with inflationary impacts. That being said, uh, a lot of our growth came from outside the U.S. We had 12% growth outside the U.S., 4% in the U.S. So what we um, know about healthcare and the business of healthcare is that while, yeah, really, there's no uh, immunity to a recession for any company, we think 
think our business, uh, our industry is much more resilient than mm -hmm. most. So we think we're in pretty good shape uh, for the outlook. We're managing the challenges now. The team's doing a great job uh, minimizing the impact on gross margins through other cost initiatives. Uh, and we think we're well set up, not just to close out this year as we mm -hmm. guided today, but for next year as well. So that's the demand side. Um, Joe, can you talk a little bit about the input cost and that rising inflation? Um, can you help me understand when you think inflation will peak for you guys? Or is it like a rolling ball of inflation? Does it pop up in one area and then go to another area and then go to wages, for example? Yeah, so we're finalizing our plans for 2023. Some of the product we manufacture in 2022 will flow through the P&L in 2023. So you'll see that still persist. But I would think right now we, we don't have the, I would say, input constraints, so the availability of materials, that seems pretty much behind us at this point, and now it's really just absorbing those extra price uh, uh, or cost increases. I think those could persist for a little bit longer, but I don't see them getting much worse, and I would hope that as some of the forecasts on your show and others have indicated, maybe in the second half of next year we'll see an alleviation of that. I think it's much harder to expect a, a cost decrease when the prices have already been raised. In our business, obviously in pharmaceutical and med tech, that is not an option to raise prices, but we have taken strategic price increases in our consumer business, and what's nice about it is that the iconic brands we have there, customers still value uh, and, and want those, uh, those brands uh, in their medicine cabinets. In terms of the consumer spin-off, just update us. What is the latest on that? What is the timeline? Uh, is everything on track from your perspective? Yeah, really pleased, Guy, with the, the progress we've made internally in terms of separating those businesses. We aim to get to be with a company within a company and then have a market, um, a capital markets transaction uh, in some form yet to be determined in the middle of next year. We're going to update investors either late this year or early next year as to what our, our path may be. We've got mm -hmm. a number of great options ahead of us. Uh, we did have the chance to name uh, not only the company but also uh, a, a chair designate in Larry Merlo, who you used to run CVS uh, to be the, the chairperson for that business. So we yep. think we're very well positioned to have great success, mm -hmm. not just for the new consumer health company known as Kenview, but also the new Johnson & Johnson made, made up of med tech and pharmaceuticals. So to that point, um, how do you beef up the area of the drugs and device area? Is it going to be acquisitions, more deals, JVs? And I'm curious as to how you reconcile that with the current macroeconomic environment. Yeah, so you just heard on our call from both Jennifer Talbert, who runs our pharmaceutical business, and Ashley McAvoy, who runs our med tech business, that our current portfolio of products, those that are on the market today, as well as those that are in the pipeline, is very, very strong. That being said, we had free cash flow generated year to date of over $13 billion. We feel very fortunate and are proud of the fact that we were able to distribute almost $11 billion to shareholders through dividends, uh, as well as a share repurchase program announced last month. Month, but we still sit on $34 billion of cash. So we're very um, aggressive, uh, look, aggressively looking at uh, yeah. ways we can complement our portfolio with strategic assets that make financial sense. Joseph, I'm hearing from other big vaccine makers that they're not seeing the demand going into winter they would have expected for COVID. What are you seeing? What is the future of that business within J&J? &J? 
Yeah, earlier this year, Guy, we uh, suspended guidance on that product, and we only uh, committed to those uh, advanced purchase agreements that we had throughout the globe and meeting those. It was never really uh, a financial driver for our business. We always focused on a much broader and much deeper portfolio. So for us, um, we're going to commit to fulfilling the obligations that we have, but really, really not much more than that. But I have heard something similar with respect to uh, the demand for COVID vaccine, um, apparently declining a little bit. JJ's CFO and Executive Vice President Joseph Wolf, uh, Wolk, sorry, um, speaking to uh, Alex and I a little bit earlier on on Bloomberg Television. Alex, I have to say it's interesting. We're starting just to see numbers creeping up on COVID. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's something that governments are not talking about at this point in time. They're focusing on all kinds of other things, mm-hmm. but COVID is still there in the background. Yeah, so apparently there's, there's like an, another variant that doesn't respond to any of the previous vaccines that is coming our way. I mean, Excellent. I'm surprised, not surprised. Uh, I think it's going to be so hard to go back to that culture where we don't go, go inside with anyone for winter and all wear masks again. Anyway. I can't see that happening. On that positive note, hope you enjoy the show. We'll be back here tomorrow. Have a great night, guys. This is Bloomberg.